This is Coda Radio, episode 344 for February 11th, 2019. Welcome to Coda Radio, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and the business of software development and its related technologies. My name is Chris in the rainy, cold Texas area, and joining us every single week is our host in Florida, the man who navigates the swamps to be here every single week is Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike! Misa here once again. <laughs> oh, good, good. But to make sure we offset all the jar jar, we have been joined by the third pole of our stool, and that is the one, the only Wes Payne. Hello, Wes. Hello, and don't worry, I've got a lightsaber to deal with that jar jar problem. <laughs> what do you think of being the third leg of the stool, right? Because our stool doesn't hold up properly without that third leg. I will say sometimes you guys are swaying a little bit to and fro, but sometimes that's fun. I, I don't, I don't, I don't know what what that could be caused by. Hmm, hmm. It's good to be back. We wanted to try a little uh, three way uh, for one episode. We're just trying things out. Wes, you have been doing a killer job sitting in. Uh, everybody writes in just says how much they hate it. They're constantly going on about how awful of a job you do. So that's how you know you do something right, right in this business. <laughs> no, everybody loves it. Everybody loves it, and we got um, some good feedback into the show. So let's start out there. Email comes in from Steve, and it's about employment versus self-employment. And uh, I'm sensing a theme here. He says, "I just have a comment regarding an episode a few weeks back regarding being employee or working for oneself. There are definitive benefits if you find the right employer, and it looks like Linux Academy is one for Chris. I decided to do what Chris did, accept employment. After all." I was struggling as a self-employed individual, but this new employer started to change my hours, working till 7 or 9 p.m., and they also started to have me do work that I was not hired to do, but I continued forward since I appreciated having a regular paycheck. But one morning, we received a company-wide notice. Our employer was concerned about how often people went to the bathroom. Shortly after that, we had to start asking permission to take a break, eat lunch, and so on. I finally had to give my resignation notice. I guess like a marriage, the challenge is finding the right mate or employer. Steve, that's a great email. And uh, so on the panel here, Mike, you're the self-employed one. What are your thoughts on this? So I have never heard of such a crazy, like, you cannot no. take a pee sort of situation. Crazy. Um, that's that's pretty terrible. I don't have a lot of experience with the whole I get a paycheck every two weeks thing because I was self-employed uh, very young. But I, you know, you know, Chris, tax and in West tax season's coming up, and it's one of those. It's that time of year when I start to think, what the hell is wrong with me? It's true. So, however, if someone told me I couldn't take a pee, that would I can't even believe we're having this conversation. Like. I know. Isn't that isn't that technically torture? Like, it also I, just seems like a huge waste of everyone's time. That kind of micromanagement's yeah, not going to get right. any good results. That's like a full time yeah. job just approving potty breaks. I mean, Chris, come on, you're a big shot VP at a big Linux company now. It's true. If one of your employees got up from his desk and was like, or your reports got up from his desk to the men's room or the ladies' room, you wouldn't, you know, track that, right? Like that, that seems. Well, I mean, as Wes knows, I did ask him to install that camera there in his bathroom. Uh, so we could just keep track of things. Yeah, but that's it's, been there for months. Yeah, I mean, we just need baseline metrics, Mike. That's all, just baselines. I thought that was part of our health initiative now. Well, that's for what I, that's why I have the analyzer in the urinal, but that's for other reasons. Oh. <laughs> um, you know, I wanted to jump ahead in our, in our show notes here, and maybe this would be a good time to tackle this story about the psychological trap of freelancing. Not that I'm now, I'm not like Mr. Anti-freelance, anti-independent work. I don't mean to come across that way. You're like a reformed alcoholic. It's terrible. A little bit. I mean, I, I, I guess uh, I would say that I feel better about it now than I did at the time of the acquisition, which I felt pretty good. That's why I went along with it. But now, having been here for a bit, I do feel better about it. There's um, having having worked independently for about a decade, the reach you get as being part of a larger company that has more resources. Is it's it's just at a whole other scale, and I find myself having to 
really combat like small thinking. Like how do we do things super hyper crazy by the skin of our teeth cheap? And how do we do something that a 10 person team does with a four person team? Like I have to break all of that way of thinking a little bit because uh, it limits what I can achieve. And that's been a hard, uh, that's been a hard shift. But I think there's a bigger mindset that I developed as an independent contractor or as a freelancer. And I wonder if you suffer from this too, Mike. And it's this, it's this unbelievable amount of value that you learn to attach to your time where now everything in life you're, you're, you're measuring against how much time is that going to take? How much time does it take me to wash my car? How much time does it take me to mow the lawn? And that becomes like this sick way of thinking about things because it sucks all the joy out of life. The audience doesn't know, but you guys know, I was just on a brief four-day trip up north, mostly business, but I, of course, my family's from there, so I went to visit. And we had a minor issue with a uh, client project. And I just went into this, I don't even know what to say, like... Fugue state? Yeah, it was was more like when um, uh, Bruce Banner just freaks out and becomes the Hulk. And I was like, sorry, kid can't play sorry which is a board game i'm sure most people are familiar with oh we all know sorry mike yeah of course i have to you know rewrite this uh doku instance because reasons right Mm -hmm. and i realized something not only did it make no difference materially to tmb my my company the client didn't even notice the problem right there was no material difference between doing it on saturday or just letting it go until monday but mm. I've I've gone into this, and I, this is why when you sent me this article, I was like, "Damn!" And also, I, I would love to after this jump back to the small thinking thing. Yeah, it's it's freelancing uh, should be the in the DSM. It's it's a form of sickness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's actually been research. So that's what this article talks about. Which we'll have linked in the show notes that explains the psychology behind this state of mind. People who attach dollar signs to their time or value time like money tend to be overwhelmingly less happy than those who don't because their non-working hours suddenly seem less important. Quote-unquote free time gets tainted with guilt because there's a cost associated with it. Wow, that's me. That I am I have to I have to struggle to not have the weekends be hell because I feel like I am wasting so much time around the house if I'm not working. And so much so that sometimes just to relieve my anxiety, I'll carve out a couple hours on Saturday to work, even though I work all day Sunday every week. I I work work six days a week. I'm the exact opposite. I work all day Saturday, but then I'm always looking to see, can I hustle, you know, a few hours like Sunday, like after church or whatever. And the thing is, is that what this article points out, I'm curious your thoughts on this, Wes, is we're seeing a bigger shift in the economy where a lot of traditional salary jobs are going more towards contract gigs and more and more people are becoming independent contractors in a sense. So it seems like this could become a larger issue. Yeah, you're right. I mean, contractors end up playing a pretty big role at a lot of organizations. And there is sort of this thought that, okay, well, if you can convert money to time and with the salary you've already negotiated, you're kind of set until your next review period and you hope for a promotion. And and with freelancing, maybe you think, yeah, I could I could just work more, but it's already so difficult to actually carve out time for yourself. And I think that affects salaried people too, right? You might want to be pushing to finish a big project and you might have the reverse problem of now guilting yourself about not actually taking any time off from work. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Salaried folks are not necessarily immune from this because now, I mean, it's crossed my mind once or twice, but this is just how I work. It's now it's like, okay, if I work six or seven days a week, well, it's not what I get paid for. I get paid for five days a week. But that's just the way my job works. But you want to, um, and you want to think about holistic outcomes, right? Because you're right. not just there to to tr- turn out parts on a factory line. You're, yeah, you're trying to make real things. Yeah, yeah, and it's a it's a process for what we make, and it just takes time. Um, so the question is, is like, what do you do if you get trapped in this mindset? And I've I've managed to pull this trick on myself a couple of times, but their research shows it actually is really something you can do. And that is if we tell ourselves that leisure time is another means to achieve the goal or financial outcomes we're striving for, that can make us more likely to take the breaks that we need and maybe even enjoy them more and be happier in general. So you can, if you can convince yourself that there is, a sense, in a sense, a monetary value or a brain downtime value that makes you more productive ultimately, 
if you can buy into that, which I believe is true, then it makes it a little bit easier to enjoy your downtime. It's a, it's a process though. It's like Mike was saying, it's something you always struggle with, but you wanted to circle back to the small versus big thinking, Mike. Yeah. So I I would love to learn more about how your thinking has changed um, because I had some very long uh, conversations when I was up in New Jersey for my business regarding things we can do, things our competitors are doing and, you know, the reality of being super small and and severely financially constrained. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think the biggest difference is in hiring potential. You know, we're we're kicking around like show ideas, like how could we pull that off? And then then it takes like ten minutes of the conversation before we go. Well, I guess we could hire somebody to do that. And like that's a big mentality shift for us because having the resources to hire people at a decent income um, with benefits and all of that was just not even something that was possible for us. But I'll tell you this: like the the scale is is pretty different, really, because I think I've told you this before. I I think they spend more easily easily in beverages and and lunches than we probably had as an entire budget for Jupiter Broadcasting. And that's just, they're, you know, Linux Academy is the largest online cloud training platform. And there's they are an institution now. They have like 120-something, 125 people working here now. And so they're just at a totally different scale. And it's meant the biggest problem that we've run into is how do we do things at a larger scale that make a difference and that are worth doing? Um, how do we do something that maybe attracts a million people instead of 500,000 people? And those kinds of things. And it, it, it's, it's a little outside of my reach right now because it's not an area. I spent so much time, so long in the trenches getting by with, oh, if I spend money on something, that means it's an area I don't spend money in in another place. And it may even mean it could ruin us if it doesn't go well. Like there's all these decisions that had to be made, let alone even being able to hire people that I spent so much time in that mindset that I have to I have to constantly catch myself. And what I've been doing is been looking at setting really large goals that try to make us re um adjust the lens in which we're looking at the problem. So we we readdress the problem in a new way of thinking. Right. That has to become the default position of thinking about it instead of focusing on the small day-to-day stuff. Yeah, yeah. Wes knows my struggles pretty well because it's something we talk a lot about in our in our meetings. You know, we have we have catch up meetings and, t- and department meetings and stuff, and we're we're trying to we're just still trying to, as a group trying to hammer this stuff out. It's a it's a there are advantages to being lean and small, especially in efficiency and direction changing. Um, you know, this isn't working. Let's move. Being able to go with your instinct; those things are your strengths when you're small. But customer support and internal feature development and uh, expansion and and growing and growing new shows um, just are much more possible when you have a larger budget and an example of that would be the choose Linux show that we recently launched uh, it just wasn't possible before to have to have the time and the resources to pay an editor and pay hosts and all that stuff it just we were maxed out without taking on substantially more advertisers and so it, it took a different business model really I think, for us to change the game because the business we were in before was advertising based podcasts of a niche market. And now the business we're in is a much larger online training business, which just has a larger customer base for one thing. So I think part of it, Mike is, is mentality. And part of it is just the core business that we were in versus what we're in now. Our, my job hasn't changed much, but the company I'm part of has. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure another piece of it is obviously capitalization, right? Bigger company, yeah, everything's just slightly larger or slightly yeah. significantly larger. Do you find that you're running up against limitations of the size of Madbotter? Well, I mean, we had a little R&D project go south very recently. So we run into the problem of we have lots of interesting ideas on things we can do and very little capital with which to do them, right? Sure. So we have to pick one, and if it doesn't work out, that hobbles us for at least a quarter. And that doesn't even start to get into any potential like, you know, we've been doing this for a long time, right? I've had all kinds of crazy things like consulting client files bankruptcy, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can't get paid. Like there's all all kind, you know, a dispute. Client feels like something's not done. But there's all kinds of things that have happened over the years. Uh, but I, the, the most painful one is actually when, you know, 
we sit down, we look at like we do this every year. We sit down, we look at the year ahead. We always have this fantasy of going towards a more productized business. And we see, you know, let's say five opportunities. We pick one, try to work it out for, you know, a month or two. And we realize we just don't have the, uh, either the financial strength or the, uh, you know, in some cases, marketing know-how to actually do it, which becomes pretty, you know, there could be other things, right? We didn't. Sometimes when things require hardware, that can be tough. Yeah, we're de- we definitely feel it. I mean, I tend to think of things in terms of like revenue against investment or investment against revenue. And our biggest problem is really we should pick a couple of these and try them out. But we always, every year we have to pick one or two. Some do, some don't. And that's pretty, uh, it's a pretty risky hand, right? It's like going to Atlantic City and just betting it all on double zero and roulette. <laughs> yeah only uh if it, if you don't win it's 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 your job plus everybody else working with you and yeah, the, yeah. the repercussions are severe yeah. mm-hmm. probably tied into this too is how much identity especially in, in america we tend to associate with our career so it's not even like that you just you know oh you started a business and it, and it didn't work out oh, oh that's too bad you just move on right that was that was a lot of your life and thoughts and investments yeah yeah really yeah i agree one way to always measure success is in number of laptops, and uh, it, it seems that um, listener Emma, uh, that's what I'm calling her now, because <laughs> I'm sure she listens, uh, she has some feedback uh, for average System76 customers, not even for Mike specifically. Emma tweets out today, uh, Emma, who is in charge of support over at uh, System76, she's the happiness manager, to put it technically. And uh, so today is clean out your computer day. Hashtag keep your laptop fans of du- clear of dust and debris. And uh, so System76 asks, what's your best computer cleaning tip? Which Emma responds to the System76 account to keep at Dumanuko away from and make sure all beverages are in a separate room. <laughs> You're getting sick burned by the System76 staff in public now. You realize that? <laughs> you know... This is a this is a gross gross misrepresentation. I have never destroyed more than seven laptops in a year. <laughs> yeah, and and a good portion of them were MacBooks. To be fair, it, you know what? And and honestly, they wanted to go. It was that's true. Time. That's true. That's true. I mean, there's part of the uh, it's part of the uh, Mike's built-in obsolesc- obsolescence program. Right. Exactly. I mean, I think <laughs> Apple wishes I could destroy more MacBooks for people. Just like kind of walk around. Oop, there you go. Oop, there you go. West Payne's kind of like the. I'm somewhere in the middle, right? I don't. I don't go through his machines as fast as you do, but I think I go through a pretty high clip. But West Payne, uh, you were rocking like one of the original, original XPSs for six or seven years or something. Yeah, that's right. Is it? Was it that long? No, not quite. Not quite that. Long. Like Probably a like decade, maybe twelve years. years. Oh. It did feel like twelve years. Yeah, it's like that uh, DS9 episode with O'Brien, and um, you know he's got the <laughs> he's in prison in his mind. It was like that, but with a laptop. <laughs> I think it's just mostly like, especially if I'm doing more development stuff, I I don't need very much. You know, like mm-hmm. an Electron app here or there, a Chrome a Chrome session, and a terminal. Yeah. Now you know, doing more doing more stuff with with um, content creation, it is nice to have a beefier rig. Hmm. Yeah, I think the one thing I the one somebody just tweeted me recently said, "Hey, do you guys still like your Lenovo T480?" Oh yeah, right. And I said yes, although I think at this point I might be inclined to go high DPI. However, we do rely on a couple of applications that don't have high DPI support, so I don't know. But that would be the one thing I might change about the T480. As soon like as I've got one of those kernels, um, and and maybe we do already, but with the um, the the recent changes, so that there's better high DPI support when you have to go log into an actual terminal, uh, you know, console on on your laptop when you have to fix something, then I'll switch. Yeah. All right. Okay. So, uh, and that'll probably be about another 10 machines or so. Yeah, right. I think so. (laughs) Well, uh, Wes, you found this great great article on cssstricks.com on what hooks mean for Vue, and I wanted you to uh, share what you found with the class today. Yeah, okay. Well, maybe we can start with like a little quiz 
Mike, have you? Do you use Vue? Are you React? Where, where do you fall in the um, single page application framework camp? I was originally in Angular, but when it was Angular JS back in the day, I have done some Vue. I, you know, I don't have any current projects using any of these heavy frameworks. The last one I did use was Vue, though, but it was it was um, at least a major version back. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, obviously in the in the JavaScript world, everything has to change at a lightning pace. Yeah, and this is like this it. is no different. So you might have seen some of the hubbub around hooks over in React. So when I saw this about Vue adding hooks as well, I thought that was an interesting sort of convergence of design. And really, Definitely. I mean, they talk about that right here in the article that it is sort of, you know, what you what you end up with is a crossover between React and Vue. They use a lot of the same language. The API is similar. The, the benefits are slightly different, and that's where it gets interesting. So the idea of hooks. It's a more functional way to do React. And at its core, I think React is a pretty functional idea. It's really like you've got a render function. And so you've got some state, some data, and then you've built this component that takes that data and then produces produces your view that gets rendered onto the page, whatever that structure of divs and, and forms, whatever you're building. Right now, the, the most common JavaScript API for all those React internals is pretty at least somewhat object-oriented. There's a lot of classes involved. You might have higher-order components where you're passing state through or nesting it or, or like a factory or something. And it's just always felt, at least to me, sort of like an impedance mismatch. Now, not everyone thinks that, and there's you know so many users of that API. But recently, they added hooks, and the basic idea is just do this all with functions. So you've got your, you know, you've got your component, and you have a hook, and you basically say, like, I need a little piece of state. Give me some state. And, and that's it. You call the function, you get your state, and you can do this multiple times. And then the React Engine knows that once that state changes, it needs to re-render whatever component you've just made. And that's how it gets to do all the fancy virtual DOM diffing and all the performance benefits. It also means, like, one of the general trends I think we've seen is, is trying to have more composition because mm. you end up with these really complicated components with multiple levels that, that you want to try to share as much stuff between so you don't have to keep reinventing it, but you want to do that in a sane way where you're not constantly passing state all around and have like 10 arguments to your functions because right. that's just not really tenable to do. So so hooks are one way to do that. Now, Vue, Vue doesn't really have that problem because it didn't have the same sort of object-oriented API and they, they even already had stateless functional components if you wanted them. But they also used this idea of mixins. And maybe Mike can, can tell us a little bit more about mixins if we want to get into that. And it just they just don't compose well. So I thought what was neat is, it, is the view camp had some of the same ideas, probably were influenced by some of the thoughts that the React camp had in terms of like, this is just a nice way to handle state in a way where you can compose and, and combine elements and components together with minimal fluff, minimal just arbitrary nesting that you kind of have to do, and in a way that scales better and is cleaner than Mixins. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. So I definitely see their case for it. Yeah, so it's, it's pretty new. Um, you, you can go try it if you want. We will have links in, in, the, in the docs, of course. Right. And it's just something to play with. Um, I, I do a lot of the Clojure script stuff, and we've kind of already had this style of approach. We, we prefer just like have some functions... You have a little state passed, it's passed into your function somehow. You track when that have. state changes, yeah, and you re-render the thing. Now, I don't know. It's hmm. kind of controversial if if the Clojure script community is going to redo things and sort of like re- rebase on top of the hooks mechanisms or keep the way that they've already done it. Now, time will tell. But it, I think it's nice to see this this sort of trend of ideas, something that I find at least personally more pleasing to develop with, find its way to the, the larger JavaScript community. Okay, so. In the case of someone using a mixin in Vue, the hooks. I see. I'm, I'm completely unfamiliar with Vue hooks, it's, so this is postdating me, right? This is newer. What What is the advantage of a hook over a mixin, other than mixins being kind of like sloppy, right? I get why they're not great. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh, go on. No, is is it? I'm just trying to conceptually. Is it if I'm not using Closure Script, right? Is it the case? Yeah, yeah, just JavaScript. Just, just yeah, ECMAScript, JavaScript, whatever. Will it? Like, I personally don't like mixins because I, I think they're frankly cause more problems than they solve. Assuming you have a large enough scale of code, right? You have a big enough code base. 
Yes, exactly. Right. They're, they're kind of like weird magic and they don't always make it explicit where logic is coming from. Right. You don't know where, what the hell is happening, basically. Yeah. So that's actually one of the main things that they talk about here is that that, you know, pokes really do do a lot of what what Mixons do, but they make it explicit where logic is coming from. So you have a little bit more documentation. And when you have to dive into a big code base that you haven't touched for six months, should be a little bit plainer about what's actually happening, how the data is flowing. OK, so on, on a like talk to me like I'm five level. The reason I might use hooks is because they are effectively more maintainable or they solve the same problems as mixins, but are far more maintainable. Yeah, more maintainable, simpler, um, and more composable. Mm. Very cool. And mm-hmm. that was a limitation on if I'm using TypeScript, JavaScript, uh, ClojureScript. Uh, ClojureScript has one library now. I think it's called HX. Um, that's that's using hooks. Uh, otherwise, Reagent, the main one, already has a somewhat somewhat similar thing where you basically just define a function that returns a data structure, and that defines your component. Um, view hooks are available already with two with uh, View two point X, but they're still experimental. So if you're going to play with them, just just be aware of that. I assume that the API works uh, regardless of TypeScript or just regular JavaScript. No, I might be crazy because I, I like I said I mostly use Angular now. In fact, I've been playing with Ionic four, which is just a uh, oh an ad- uh, addition to Angular. But doesn't React have something like this already? Yeah, yeah. So React had hooks first. Oh, yeah, um, it does have actual hooks. Okay. Yeah, and they 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 had been in development for for a while, and then they kind of just recently became generally available, and people started really using them. Got it. Okay. Well, the JavaScript hmm. world. Uh, by the time this show ends up on iTunes, uh, there'll be a new version. Yeah, hooks won't <laughs> even be relevant anymore, so you guys can just skip this chapter. <laughs> nice. Good find, Wes. I love it. I appreciate the breakdown. Definitely, definitely out out of my pay grade, but fascinating to learn about. Um, looks like there's going to be a whole bunch of federal funding for AI projects, Mike. So uh, you should uh, use that uh, use that uh, small size of the Mad Botter to uh, pivot into AI as quick as possible. My ears just perked up. Yeah, yeah. I guess there's going to be an executive order signed that prioritizes federal funding for AI, and will create resources for AI research, establish standards, and more. It seems like that could be uh, that could be a pretty big deal to legitimize the field of AI development. I might be wrong. That seems like a big news story. Yeah, this is this is a literally breaking news for me. So I have yeah. to take a look at it. Yeah, yeah, it, it it developed while we were after we were actually already connected and recording. I just saw it go by on the feeds. It's it kind been, of strikes me as just the um the, the way things happen. Uh, not necessarily <laughs> like enshrining it in in valid validity, uh, but more like it, it's it's one more peg on the system as like oh right, all like the hipster tech companies started using it. Uh, and you saw some real results, but then like, okay, finally, like the slower moving cycles of government money are coming out to actually fund this. Right. Which will build out the industry. I mean, that kind of, I mean, you can, you can get a, you can get a nice healthy business that lives off of federal contracts and funding. And it all, it may also lead to AI being used more in scientific research, which could have other kinds of benefits. It could be a really big deal. And I think that the overall effect adds not legitimacy isn't the right word because it's not that it's not a legitimate field right now but it um feels like it uh, sort of enshrines it in like it's now a it's now a codified tier of the tech industry in the states and uh just yeah you're right d- like the stodgy the stodgy folks over there in the government they're, they're yeah they're hip to it now too they're funding so it. it's not cool right anymore. and that will create a lot of business around it that'll create a lot of money for development and uh, resources around it which will build out that industry base it'll draw more people into the field I and mean, it's all part of a cycle uh, if it's successful obviously but you know just anecdotally there is a lot of requests for machine learning courses at Linux Academy coming in from students. It seems to be a field that people, generally the trend seems to be if people are beginning to look at that job field more, then they start requesting that training. So there's sort of a correlation between people looking for jobs in an industry and the amount of requests that Linux Academy gets for that kind of training. And machine learning's way up on the list. Yeah, and and then that would mean that either there's at least a perception of and possibly really an increase in, in people, you know, companies hiring for those roles or people interested or thinking that companies will want more of those staff we should come up with a way to use machine learning wouldn't that be cool like something to analyze our podcasts like and analyze something about the podcasts i don't know something oh yeah all right let's uh, together come up with something silly absolutely yeah we could do something 
Yeah, I think so. We'll just try um, to train a model that generates podcasts when we really don't want to. There you go. That's what I, that's what I was thinking of actually. Kind of along those lines, today Nvidia announced that they are open sourcing their face rendering uh, technology called um, StyleGAN or StyleGAN, and it creates these super realistic faces. I'm gonna, I'll put a link. Uh, I'll drop a link in the chat room so you guys can see it. It's there. It's really something like you would look at the pictures of these faces. And you would think that they are real human being faces. Boy. It's it's beyond the candy. A couple of them where, are like a little bit weird, but a, most of them are just yeah. You know, especially and it probably helps that there's enough diversity in the human faces. You know, there's just a lot of true. At least at least for how attuned we are to, to looking at faces, there's a lot of range. Yeah, I mean, in here they're even putting uh, babies' faces. Um, there is uh, like this this uh, this Asian gal's face here has like uh, like oily like like you know she's. Got like her super moisturized she was skin. Coming back from the uh, from the gym. Yeah, it's just amazing, and uh, they're open sourcing it today. Hyper realistic face generator. So it's coming. It's coming. They the part of what they're what part of what it really is that they're open sourcing is the data set because obviously that's what oh, you yeah. need for something like this, right? Looks like the uh, the repo here seems that it's Creative Commons licensed. Ah, thank you, thank you. Yeah, and it's something like seventy thousand cropped and lined up headshots that it uses as source material to generate the faces. And that's part of what they're open sourcing is that uh, 70,000 high quality PNG images. Of wow. Yeah, that is, that's a huge thing. You don't always see that, you know, it's like, Oh yeah, we got this cool algorithm, but uh, here's the data collecting set. all of your data to actually make a model. And you know, it's not, it's not a trivial thing to get 70,000 headshots that are essentially all lined up the same way, cropped the same way. I mean, it can be automated to a point, but somebody had to go take those pictures. Yeah, take those pictures, filter through, clean the data you said, make sure that all of them are actually worthy of inclusion and won't mess things up. Yeah. And that you're like allowed, you know, <laughs> where, did they, where were they sourced from? There's probably that question too. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you, you assume NVIDIA has that part taken care of, right? And then here they also say that as part of it, they're releasing pre-trained models, which are stored as PKL files, which uh, oh, are pronounced pickle. Yeah, yeah, and they're just up on Google Drive, so you can go grab a pickle file off of Google Drive. Fresh hot pickle up on Google Drive, <laughs> and generate your own fake face, and use that as your own. Uh, your, um, you know, this would be a great way to be anonymous online, but make it look like you're a real person. And then you combine this with deep fakes, and you could have a YouTube channel. <laughs> oh, the endless possibilities! And you'd script it all with Python. And there is some Python results that we could talk about today. There is an annual Python developer survey that's officially annual now because this is the second one they've ever done. The Python Software Foundation got together with JetBrains and conducted an official annual Python developer survey. You guys want to hear about some of the things they found? Interested at all in, uh, in the world of Python? And, okay. and just for some, it's funny this. too because there's, there's some like some background is... I mean, Python's kind of old, right? It came out in the 90s. Yeah. Uh, and it's had multiple faces. It's been used as a teaching language. It has like, you know, a semi-prominent web development framework. Yep. And then now it's having something of a resurgence for AI. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, which is, uh, which is uh, exactly why it ended up in this part of the show. So 84% of Python users in the survey use Python as their main language. By the way, also, I did a little looking at their data set and... Um, their data set seems fairly legit. They have uh, all of their source material posted up in the show, which we will link uh, in the show notes. The average respondents were 20-somethings. Uh, about 39% of them were 20-somethings. 31% though, so a, a, a almost a third. 30 to 39. And then 12%, 40 to 49. With only 7% being 18 to 20. But So that's the age range. And then experience in the IT field 25% of them had 11 plus years in the IT field. So that's a little bit of the, and it's all over the world that they surveyed, although most of the respondents are in India and the US. 21% in the United States and 16% in India, with the United Kingdom coming in at 6%, and then Germany at 5%, China 4%, France 4 Russia 3 Canada 3 All right, so that's, that's, our, that's our base that we're getting our answers from. And 84% of those people use Python as their main language. Half of them that were surveyed also use JavaScript. The 2018 stats were pretty similar to the 2017 results in this regard, with one significant difference in here being that 
there's a pretty noticeable jump in bash and shell usage. It's grown from 36% in 2017 to 45% in 2018. So Python developers are using more bash. What do you make of that, Mr. West? What do you think that is? I wonder if that's just sort of the general trend in in developers doing more operations work. Are they just having more access to bash terminals? They have to kind of muck around more right. in systems? Yeah. I wonder if it's that. And then, Mike, do you think I'd be crazy to suggest that it's also more of them are using Linux in general? That's exactly what I was going to say. I think the correlation between Python developers and Linux uh, usage, particularly now that we're in this... Uh, are we still in a Mac exodus, by the way? Can we still say that? Or is that... I don't know. I, I, I or has don't know. it stabilized, maybe? I think it's stabilized a little bit with the Mac Mini and the iMac Pro. I, I feel like it's sort of stabilized out a little okay. bit. And Windows still isn't that great. Yeah, yeah. Although Windows, even is with doing, all the great Linux options it has, it's just more like the core OS hasn't really gotten. I think it's pleasant. like they're all just yeah, they've but they've all gotten a little more competitive over the last twelve months. Even the Linux side, so, but yeah, I think they, I think they still lost quite a bit. And I think it's still. I, I've always felt like the Max Exodus was going to be something that was just ongoing as people got sort of bored of the sandbox of of Mac OS or the limited laptop choices or desktop choices that they might want to just look at an open source desktop stack altogether. Uh, I've always kind of felt that, but um, we'll see. We'll see if that continues to bear out. It's Apple's game to lose, really. Going on to your point, Wes, 58% of respondents are using Python to do data analysis. That's pretty significant. I wonder what data analysis counts as, because that could be, that's kind of a broad question, right? Because mm -hmm. you don't have to be a data scientist to do data analysis. It might just be like munging through a whole bunch of XML or JSON to process in, in some pipeline that you're using. I bet you that's a lot of it. I bet you that, that, is, I bet you that is a lot of it. 52% are using it for web development, 43% DevOps, and pretty strong, 38% are using it for machine learning. That's about a 7% jump, not, not substantial but a 7% jump from 2017. I think that's worth worth noting in its own, and I think it's worth noting that data analysis has now become more popular than web development. I think that's also interesting and uh, worth noting, and it just shows you where Python's at right now, and it's not none of it's bad or good, it's just where yeah. it's at. Um, and it's some, it speaks, I think, to some of the particular things that Python's done well, which is mostly just mm -hmm. like accumulated a lot of uh, accelerated libraries uh, implemented in C or Assembler or Fortran and then linked against the main Python implementation that make it good for that. And so while Ruby or Node or whatever else of the days can come up and easily start being like, look at this hot new web framework, it's harder to be like, look at these neat, highly optimized linear algebra implementations. <laughs> um, but there is a bit of a story here, isn't there, about how Python has sort of kept up with staying relevant. And has managed to grow its user base and managed to find newer and newer uh, use cases and still grow out its ones that it has a stronghold in. That's, okay, I so think. We, we have to talk about that uh, in this survey, which is crazy. And it might it probably just speaks, right? We have to be aware of whatever selection involved with the people who actually took the survey. Right. 84% using Python 3. Yeah. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, that's well, a pretty big jump. Python or am I just old and know too many people who are stuck on Python 2? Python 3 has been for Python. some time. Yeah, it has, but I still come across stuff on Python 2 all the time. Which well, like, and I think right. for a long time, we were it, it was you know it was the joke. It was like how not to do a language transition because everyone was like, well, we already built this giant code base in 2 and we don't trust the 2 to 3 converter, so like we don't need 3. And it took a while before like Django fully worked with 3 or you know a lot of the big libraries. Yeah. But it seems like now... You know, a, a several or or many of the larger tech companies that are based on it have changed to Python three. It's the default. I think a lot of people are using distros have switched, so it's kind of a new Python three era. So I think that's kind of it because thirty eight percent of respondents get Python from the distribution repo or Homebrew or whatever, like the OS provided installation method is. Thirty eight percent are doing that, and so it doesn't get updated until those get updated. And if you're on a maybe a rel from a you know release or two ago, um, maybe that, that could lead to that lag a little bit in, in getting people to switch over. That could be part of it. And I think that's probably pretty astute there, Mr. Payne. You got to also figure there's cloud providers that play a role in this. And if those cloud providers are pushing the version forward on a reliable cadence, then that is also making developers push forward. 55% of Python users who use cloud platforms prefer AWS. Google Platform comes in second. 
followed by Heroku, then DigitalOcean, and then Azure, which I thought was interesting. And then about a third of the respondents said, no cloud solutions for me. I run it all on-premises. And as you guessed, Mike, 69% of respondents are using Linux as their primary development Boom. OS. Yeah, 69% is huge. That's huge. Doesn't mean it's their only OS, but it means it's the OS they spend their time in developing Python. Uh, Windows came in 47%, Mac OS 32%, and BSD at 1%. <laughs> But it, hey, it made it, it hit one percent. So. Yeah, it got yeah. included, right? It got invited to the debate, and that's what counts. That's true. It did show up on the map, I guess. Um, no surprise here. PyCharm is the most popular tool for Python development with thirty-five percent share. However, a little disruption here. A new contender, VS Code, has gone from seven percent in twenty seventeen to sixteen percent in twenty eighteen, becoming the second most popular editor for Python development, VS Code. It's cute, Not right? surprised, sandwiched actually. right in between the uh, PyCharm Professional Edition, which is the most popular, and then the PyCharm Community Edition, which yeah. is the third most popular, and then boom, VS Code right there. How about that? It's more popular than the PyCharm Community Edition. And Vim. And, I mean, you know, we don't we, we talk about it for a lot of other reasons, but uh, hey, it's it's open source. Well, not, not I don't know about technically the version that you download that's compiled for you, but in theory, it's open source. Hmm. I, I have nothing bad to say about VS Code, really. I think Microsoft nailed it. So it doesn't really surprise me to see it's growing. And I, I've been Give using Electron it more Electron a good name. Yeah, yeah. Given LibreOffice a good name, actually. The other day I loaded up LibreOffice Writer for the first time in you know a decade or whatever it's been. And I'm like, this is so lightweight and quick. It's using so little RAM. <laughs> My whole perspective on <laughs> LibreOffice Writer has changed because of all the Electron apps I use now. <laughs> So there you have it. Things change. Okay, just a couple more to round us all out, then we're done here. More than half of Python users are employed full-time, 19% are students, and 13% are self-employed or freelancing. It's a small group now, Mike. 13%. Yeah. The few, the proud. Yep. Yep. Um, yeah, so that's pretty much it. And then we have the ages in here. There's several. I don't, anything else jump out at you about this uh, survey, Wes? I get people, a lot of people uh, working as a team. A lot of people working independently. That that worked. That jumped out at me. Forty eight percent work on a team, and forty eight percent work on their own. With four percent work as an external contractor or trainer. Four percent. Ooh. You know, I also noticed that um, a lot of twenty five percent had eleven plus years in IT, and that kind of makes sense. I don't know. A lot of the people I know who are are decent at Python who might not be quote unquote Python developers, but use it anyway, are people that just learned it as a scripting language coming up in the two thousands. Mm hmm. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. I guess that could that could make it stick too. That's why uh, that's why Apple's always tried to get uh, folks when they're uh, in a in a very impressionable stage with IT and computers to use Macs. Now Google's doing it with yeah, Chromebooks. Oh yeah, same same way. I also one other thing before we go is uh -huh. Flask is doing great, which is a more lightweight web framework. Yes. Django's the big one that's like Rails, but Flask is is a yeah. pretty nice little guy. So it's nice to see it doing well. Yeah, that is cool. You know, I want to say too that I've noticed that Python. And the Python community at large do a really good job of reaching out to kids in a way that I don't see a lot of other communities doing. And so I think that's pretty great too. Uh, so I think a tip of the hat, as a parent, I just got to say, tip of the hat to them for doing that. I think that's really cool. Now, Mike wanted to get together here on, uh, on the Coder Radio program and use the brain trust of all of us to imagine near a future, perhaps a far distant future, where the iOS app store has been opened up for all, or maybe even, maybe even an alternate reality. Just for the sake of conversation, let's say that when the Large Hadron Collider went online, the universe split, Donald Trump became president, and Apple opened up the app store to everyone. So we have two parallel universes now. Yeah, yeah. So it, it's less opening to everyone and more, even if you kept the app review policies, everyone oh. gets the same financial deal. And okay. All right, same, I can work with those rules. Yeah, you know, let's let's even stick with the financial stuff first. There's also So it's the same it's like the same share, same cut, and also like it's the same kind of crap that gets you rejected, but it's just the standard is applied from like 
Joe's dot Joe's text dot app to Netflix dot app. Yeah, exactly. So so the thing that really uh, uh, kind of triggered me on this, of course, was the Facebook Google shenanigans from last week. But the response of uh, particularly like ATP and some of the other more Apple focused podcasts kind of being like, well, of course, there are different deals for the big boys versus the little guys, which is like true, right? Like for a long yeah. time, it has been widely reported that Netflix hasn't has never paid 30% to Apple. Right. They've right. always you get a sweetheart deal. Right. And Microsoft doesn't either. And, you know, Facebook's app theoretically can be rejected. But let's be honest, that's. That doesn't really happen, right? Well, and I think that's why they're like, of course, they're special deals. Applications like Instagram, Facebook, Netflix, Amazon Prime, maybe they are they are value adds to the platform, and without those, you don't have as strong of a platform as say Android. I would argue that Android has so many other deficiencies. Which send your hate mail to Alan at Broadcasting dot com <laughs> that. One, I don't, I don't think. Let, let's just take the case of Facebook, uh, because Facebook and Instagram are the same company now, right? Mm-hmm. If Apple told Facebook, so and so feature violates our guidelines in the Facebook app, would Facebook really dump iOS? Those are the most valuable mobile users in the world. They're I would not- imagine they'd probably double down on their web app. Well, they're still on mobile Safari then, right? Yeah. And, and they're going to be. Plus, you just can't spy very well with a web app. So how's that going to (laughs) work? Right. Well, that's exactly what I'm getting at. Right. Like it. It's weird. I find myself in a strange position because I I have in the past been very understanding, if not slightly annoyed at Apple's kind of draconian app review policies. But the financial stuff in particular, you know, Netflix getting a 15 percent. I I know it's not called the, the app store fee, right? The app store cut. I get why, because they make billions of dollars. But don't you think that's going to put the next Netflix, right? The, you know, Westflix, Westflix, whatever, Mm. at a fundamental disadvantage because they're cut to the platform vendor who, I mean, I got to be honest, I'm not even like, I have lots of issues with this whole walled garden thing now, but their, their cut is double. When, when you're smaller, you're not operating at, very much efficiency at all compared to your larger competitor. So it feels to me the state we have now entrenches the larger, more established companies and actually Apple giving them better deals while there may be legitimate reasons for it is a backdoor way for them to also stifle their, their potential competition. Right. It seems like this is kind of the same argument that people were making for net neutrality in some ways, right? That that the big, the big companies have more leverage and little ones won't be able to start. Also just real quick, FYI, uh, Westflix is just great British, great British bake off and Star Trek on a continuous loop. (laughs) Bring me your scrumpets. Uh, Well, I mean, it, it, you know, we had that New York Times report where Facebook, um, a Facebook employee basically said, yeah, our entire business strategy is if we see us, we track what you're doing on your phone. If we see a startup that's potentially going to compete with us, we either buy them or clone them. Right. So a la Snap, what they did to Snapchat, right? They implemented a bunch of their features on Instagram. Right. Yeah. You, I mean, you have to, right? Is that, that whatever, quote unquote, dominant market position? Right, but they're 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 doing it in a pretty, I would argue, pretty shady, unethical way. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'm, I'm that's just, fair. Like, it's my opinion, it <laughs> in your wrong. face kind of way too. Right, and they because they're big, they somehow have this leverage with the platform vendor. What if we went into to Chris's alternate universe, and Apple just said, you know what, we are the best platform for making money on mobile in at least North America and Europe. Right, I can't speak to other places. So here's the deal. Everybody gets the same deal. This is it. This is the human interface guideline. This is the app review rules. And it's 30%. Then after the first year, it's 15% if you're doing a subscription, which is the current policy. No side deals, no accommodations. That's what it is. Do you really believe that Netflix would drop their iPad app. Now, Netflix, I would argue, is in the best position to do a PWA because they're not that interested in spying on you. But like, I would eat my hat if Facebook or Instagram did, right? Google certainly wouldn't abandon the platform. Microsoft, 
it's it's so busy abandoning Windows right now that I doubt they'd abandon iOS. Or am I insane? I mean, is this just like Mike going off the rails? Well, it's a, I think it's a per case situation here. So take Amazon. Here's a great case study. When they bought Comixology and when they bought Audible, they removed the ability to buy books or comics within the app because of Apple's cut and said, if you want to buy, in fact, they weren't even very clear about it because Apple's policies won't let you, but you have to just suss out. If you want to purchase something, you have to launch your web browser and go to their website and buy it. And so this has happened and been like this now for years, years now. So there is some precedent for a large tech company to say, hey, we can make do without you. We're big enough. We don't need you. So I, there, it could happen. So this is the exact point. So you actually set up the point perfectly. Now, let's say, let's say Facebook created a competitor to Comixology. And for whatever weird reason... Apple made a side deal with Facebook, right? Uncle Tim and uh, Marky Boy got together and made a deal that Facebook's comic app would only pay 10%. And that comic app would have the convenience of selling through the app store uh, through in-app purchase their, their you know issues and subscriptions where Amazon's comicsology couldn't. A- Amazon, that is Apple putting their finger on the scale, right? They're at a material disadvantage. And we haven't even gotten into the fact that there's an editorial function of the App Store and they can feature whoever they like. Mm-hmm. True. Let me ask you this. It, it seems like it's it, what, what we're really running up against is pressures on a model that needs to be changed. Like the App Store has been around for eight or nine years now. And this has essentially been the model with the slight adjustment to subscriptions recently. But recently is like in the last two years. Like that's what's recent. I think what has to be looked at is the value the App Store provides to the developer. If they're hosting a bunch of game asset files and they're streaming that using the Akamai CDN all around the world to people's devices as levels load, that's a that's a that's a thirty percent value, definitely. Yeah, because you're hosting my files, you're you're making all the backend infrastructure. That's that's valuable. However, if I'm a streaming application that is simply just loading a video player, and then streaming the contents from my server, and I'm paying for the bandwidth, and I'm paying for the video hosting, and I'm bringing the bulk of the value to the relationship, then I think it's inappropriate to ask for 30% of the revenue. There needs to be a reanalysis of the value that Apple brings versus the value that the app provider brings. Sure. And if Apple's hosting the majority of the infrastructure, then they price it that way. If it's a streaming app, and perhaps they could just make a broad category. Streaming applications, we only take a 10% cut. I agree with that, but that's that's not exactly the argument here, right? Because you have to compare Apple to Apple's, uh, so pun intended. Right, again, I'm just saying I think that's the way you fix this. Because you're right, it does stifle It does stifle the little the, the smaller app developer, but as a, as a private business, or I mean as a business, as a... As a as a company that's supposed to make money, Apple has every right to do that. But let's just say there was like JB Book, which was a, a, a fledgling competitor to Facebook. And you did the exact same thing that Facebook did in this latest hubbub. Your dev account would have simply been deleted. We're talking about, we're talking about uh, last week's uh, enterprise last week. developer. Right. You would have no dev account. Your apps would have been pulled. Done. You'd have been put out of business. Yeah, I think I agree as- with that. Mm-hmm. So that is Apple picking a winner, right? That That's, I mean, I know I'm going to sound very like, because I, I do believe that these app stores actually are in some, I'm not a lawyer, but in some way they need to be regulated with an antitrust eye. Because basically, while I know Tim Cook personally doesn't like Zuckerberg, <laughs> if he did, and him, let's just say, you know, for whatever reason, he decided that Facebook was the one true social network. Apple could simply not allow any other social networks on their platform. They have that power. They have the power to, as they just did last week, allow one developer to violate. And yes, they did some PR slap on the wrist, which was nice. But there was no real repercussions other than, you know, a minor day and a half of uh, chaos at Facebook headquarters. The Facebook... Yeah, but that's... And Google, and we're talking, you're talking tens of thousands of employees and contractors. Look at what they did to small developers, right? Look what they did to the developer of the Dash app on Mac, which was a, uh, a, uh, 
uh, API documentation and uh, dev documentation, macOS application, who had a minor problem with his account because he was uh, from, I don't know the exact, I don't remember the details, but I, I remember I spoke to him. He was, basically he had a problem. He had to use a, a Eastern European card and Apple freaked out because they thought it was fraud. They just threw mm-hmm. him out with no communication. That would never happen to Facebook. right? Facebook intentionally and overtly violated the policies and got little more than a slap on the wrist. Now, to play devil's advocate here, wouldn't the argument be on Facebook side, well, that's, that's, the, that's the reward we get for making our product so appealing to end users that they demand it on the platform. Like and no, no. And, that's, and Apple's, Apple's defense is we, we, we worked business to business with um, an important quote-unquote partner of ours on the App Store to make sure that we had a quick resolution to an application that's really important to our users. Now, I, I grant you Facebook's actual core app was never at risk here. But if we're talking about like the response of closing someone's developer account, which thus kicked them out of the app store as a result of that, I don't think that was ever going to happen to Facebook because of those two pretty defensible positions. And that's a really shitty thing to say when you're an independent developer who's up against that. But that is the way these businesses work because of the demand of users. So, so there's a famous Greek quote, right? The weak suffer what they must, which is basically what you're saying. So let's say if we had Chrisbook again, by failing to be as big and as important, as powerful as Facebook, you will be inherently disadvantaged by what is supposed to be, in quotes, a neutral platform vendor. It would yeah, right. be we like, just don't have a lot of neutral platform well, vendors. There's always humans who are picking and choosing and making decisions, and they're going to always have bias. Yeah, but in other spaces, there are rules, right? Let's say, you know, I really don't want a competitor to open next door to me, right? But I cannot get SunBiz, which is the Florida uh, uh, State Department's, you know, business corporation registry, of course. to forbid the registration of another development shop. Apple can. Apple can say, hey, you just can't be on the App Store. True. Right or or you can't make this style of application. Right. I, I was good. I yeah. I was gonna say the web is the is the one true platform. Except one of the reasons we switched our Jupiter Broadcasting YouTube embed videos back to YouTube from our own hosted MP4 feeds is because several carriers out there are free rating YouTube, and I'm I'm competing against free. So if you watch a video on yes. our website, it is going against your data. If you watch it on YouTube, it's free and. That we looked at that and went, well, people aren't watching because of that. So now we're embedding YouTube videos again. Yep. And, the and there's not really issue. a neutral platform. Right. It's the exact same issue of, I think, what is it? T-Mobile likes uh, likes Netflix and Verizon likes YouTube, right? Something weird like that. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's crazy. I think everything should be forced to be neutral. But again, you can write Alan at JupiterBroadcasting.com. <laughs> I was going to I was going to go to Linux. But then really you have, I mean, correct me if you think I'm wrong here, Wes, but even even Linux distributions aren't a neutral distribution platform because you have the opinions of maintainers and and whatnot that have to get the software in the distributions. I don't really even think Linux is like a truly neutral distribution platform. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know quite what neutral is. I think at least there, there's at least more, more rules. Um, and at, at least in some distributions... If you want, you could step up and, and volunteer to maintain things and True. probably be able to, to, to lobby for inclusion of whatever software you wanted if you were going to do the work. And you just don't have that option. Yeah. It's funny, too, that you haven't seen, like, I can see high, you know, 30% or whatever when you're when you're starting off, you're trying to bootstrap. But we all know how much cash Apple has, right? 30% is just quite the, it's quite the cut. Yeah, the issue is that they have to drive services revenue. That's the only area of strong growth they have in that right. area that the market's watching very closely. And so any cuts they make in this area take from services. Right. I would just like to add one point to kind of sharpen my argument here because I, I feel like um, it's not just the preferential treatment. It's there is a documented list of rules and the punishments are for, you know, I, I started doing iOS development, the apps were uh, opened. Right or right before it opened, actually, the punishments have been well documented over the years. Facebook, in particular, is such a privileged place where they can not only get preferential treatment, like you know, call an Apple rep and get an answer. They can actually openly and unapologetically violate the rules, and just you know, 
simply get probation for murder one, basically. Which seems crazy to me that that would ever be acceptable. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't disagree with you. And we didn't even get to the conversation around the amount of control that Apple has and why I think the real reason it was such a minor punishment is because if they had gone any longer, it would have started the conversation. Do, do we want to let Apple have this much control over the internal functions of Google and Facebook and other major corporations? Because the answer to that is no. And if they had put the pressure on any longer, you know that would have been the conversation. The only reason it didn't go that direction is because they pretty much tied things up in a day and a half and problem solved. But if it had gone to a week, that would have been that that would have been the focus of the conversation. I mean, PWAs are getting better every year. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if in the future these type of internal like order your burrito apps aren't just going to be PWAs and and that's the world we're going to. I agree. Now we have to, we have to get going, but uh, Mr. Payne, do you have any final thoughts? Oh, I think that I think that wraps it up. I mean, there's so much more to talk about here, and we'll we'll continue to see how this developments and how how this develops and how Apple does Apple actually embrace PWAs? Is that going to be a thing, or are we just going to see more on Android and, and Apple remains mm-hmm. its little pristine walled garden? I don't know. Uh, you probably just have to keep tuning into Coder Radio. Maybe you could subscribe. I don't know where to do that. Hmm. Maybe coder.show slash subscribe. We'd love to know your thoughts to coder.show slash contact and links for everything we talked about today. Coder.show slash 344. I, I, I want to, before we go, I got a couple of picks and I do want to say this. We have to take all of this commentary on Apple about and the App Store and put it in the frame of the fact that I'm sitting right here with an iPad Pro right now. So they're doing something right because one of the reasons I bought the iPad Pro is because it has the best apps. And there is that reality and that aspect of the app store is it, it sells products. So I don't, I don't like what they're doing. And I think everything you brought up is a valid point. And I think they need to restructure based on the value they bring developers, but they are doing some things right. Speaking of right, uh, I think you found a virtual machine in the web browser to learn C, Wes. This sounds awful, right? Oh, yes. oh, I'm here. Hi, I'm here. And I did, I did find that. So I don't know about you guys, but especially like learning Linux, I think it's a great example. There's a lot of interactivity. You know, you type something wrong into the shell and it yells at you or maybe it deletes all your files. But either way, you feel bad and you got that fast feedback. And and as as Mike will probably attest, it's the same reason you do stuff in development like like test driven development. So you've got all these tests, you know, quickly if you make a change. Did, did you break anything? Did it actually work? Oh, yeah. It's harder to do that in C, right? Like in Python or Ruby or even Java these days, you can pull up a REPL, you can kind of play around, get a feel for things. See, you got to go understand, install, install a compiler, figure out how it works. There's no like handy package manager or anything. And then you have to go reason about this old language that was designed to be like a slightly better assembler. Enter mini C, which is just like an in-browser embedded C environment for learning. So it'll it'll show you what the what the what the compiled output looks like and sort of disassemble it a little bit and clarify. What, what's going on, and then it shows you a big old hunk of memory and lets you step through it. Obviously, you know, if you're a professional C developer, you can do all of this with all of your existing toolers, all of your existing tooling, GDB, all sorts of stuff. But if you're just getting started, learning C isn't always easy, especially if you're coming from like JavaScript. I think this would be a great tool. That is a cool find. It's open source too. Uh, links to all that in the show notes, as mentioned earlier. And you're on fire with the finds this week, Wes. Nice job. Jeez, you are you are good. You are a sleuther of the internet. It's like a sponge. Um, now, my sleuthing I, I, has gone in a weird direction this week. I, I After that conversation about uh, Apple being a kingmaker, I thought it would be good to lighten the mood a little bit. And um, I found a browser extension that I just suggest you install for a day. I, I wouldn't leave this on forever. But maybe give it a go. It is a extension that adds a laugh track to any YouTube video on YouTube. I'll give you an example here. And a richer country than it was when I assumed office less than two years ago. We are standing up for America and for the American people. And we are also standing up for the world. So you can play that 
um, along within a YouTube video, and it makes everything better. It's just a nice, it's a nice thing to have, and you can find a link to that in the show. Watch that's out, everything. they're going to use it on Jupiter Broadcasting videos. <laughs> that's not a bad idea. I sh- that's what I should have got a clip of. That would have been, that'd have been really good. Uh, Mr. Paint, thank you. Thank you for not only uh, filling in, but sticking around now that we're going to, we're trying this out. Let us know what you guys think. Uh, I'm still traveling, so there'll probably be some more just uh uh, Wes and Mike episodes, but when we get a chance from time to time, we're going to try to do the uh, three of us. Love to know your thoughts. Coder.show slash contact. And I think I, I think I also registered coderradio.show, but I don't remember anymore. Uh, so coder.show slash contact to let us know what you think. Go get more Wes. Not only is he on the Linux Unplugged program, but he's also on the revamped TechSnap, joined by Jim Salter from Ars Technica. And very soon, they have a deep dive coming up on Network QoS, which could be very handy when developing and testing software. They just did an episode deep dive on ZFS on Linux and the situation there and much more. So go check out techsnap.systems for that. Thank you, Wes, for being here. Mr. Dominic, where do you want to send people this week? Uh, follow at Dominuku on Twitter. Boom. Easy peasy. But I won't say lemon squeezy. Wes, uh, stay safe in the snow up there. It's crazy. Ooh, up there. It's a 70-year snowstorm. Say- yeah, I think the easiest way is to just keep podcasting, right? That way you'll know I'm yeah. alive. Yeah, right. <laughs> That's how we'll, we'll check in on you from time to time. Make sure you're alive by being subscribed to all the shows. That's just a great idea, Wes. Well, thank you, everybody, so much for being here. I'm at Chris LAS on the Twitter. The network is at Jupiter Signal, and we'll see you back here next week. <laughs>